Welcome to Affect Autism. I am absolutely thrilled and excited to have today Dr. Stuart Shanker with us. Dr. Shanker is the founder and chief executive officer of the Merit Center. He is this distinguished professor emeritus at York University in the fields of psychology and philosophy. And he's the CEO of the Merit Center Limited. And the website is selfreg.ca. Welcome, Dr. Shanker. Thank you very much, Daria. Now, I'm not sure if you know this or not, but I kind of hope you do. And if you don't, I'm going to tell you right now, you are the reason that my website, Affect Autism, exists. So I owe you a huge thank you. (laughs) You That's wonderful. You didn't know that. Um, Shortly after um, our son had severe brain inflammation, was in the hospital for four months, um, I saw the broadcast on The National in early 2012 about the study at York University and about DIR floor time. And we were just coming up on an autism diagnosis and that plunged me right into DIR floor time because I I sent you an email and you were kind enough to refer me to your team. And through them, I got consultation and was led to ICDL and took the training and uh, voila, the course, (laughs) the, uh, the website is here. Well, I'll tell you something you don't know. I read your blogs every week. Oh, wow. Well, that is quite an, quite an honor for me to hear. <laughs> and I believe we've retweeted several of them. They're very, very useful. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, that kind of leads me, I guess, into our first question, because yeah. you were the lead researcher of the DIR floor time study at York University that demonstrated noticeable benefits in social functioning of autistic children after one year of a regular DIR floor time program at home. So can we start by briefly discussing your relationship with Dr. Stanley Greenspan, the late Dr. Greenspan, the creator of DIR Floor Time, and how your co-authored book, The First Idea, came about, and how that led to the groundbreaking DIR Floor Time study at York University? Okay, well, <laughs> it's a, there's a lot there. Um, in 1997, Stanley published a book called The Growth of the Mind. And I thought it was a wonderful book and sent to, did something I never do. I sent him a letter and just said, this is a great book. Uh, well done. Our team is really benefiting. And I got an answer back from him right away saying he was going to be in Toronto shortly for a master class. Um, and would I like to come and uh, be his guest? So we met in Toronto and this would be in 1998. And, uh, We went up to his room afterwards, and if you know anything about Stanley, um, he had his dinner while we talked. His dinner was a huge plate of fruit and vegetables, and proceeded to grill me, uh, and I hadn't been grilled the way he did that night since I'd been in graduate school. And I guess about two days later, I got a phone call from him, and he said, how would I like to be trained in psychiatry? And he would train me in the same way that Erickson trained him. So uh, I thought about this for about four seconds and then agreed (laughs) and uh, didn't know what I was getting myself into. Um, And you will not believe this, but it's true. Uh, We trained seven days a week, and I I do mean seven days, uh, anywhere from one hour to four hours. And we did that for... Um, almost five years. It, it, it sort of tapered off a little in the last couple of years. 
And around year three, so this is, it was an intense training and I had to do all the standard stuff that you do, all the reading and I had to do uh, clinical, uh, clinical work with him watching me and then asking me ever so gently why I screwed up as much as I had. <laughs> and um, around the year uh, 2002, we launched uh, an initiative. I had uh, been interested in a universal program for Canadian children. And the reason was I was doing work with, the Canadian, with some uh, scientists associated with the Canadian government. And we were tracking the uh, growing incidence rate of internalizing and externalizing problems. And we noticed, um, the short version is we noticed not just a worrying trend, but it was escalating. And so I wanted to launch this universal program that would target all children, and Stan wanted to do the same thing. So we launched in 2002 something called Building Healthy Minds. And it was, uh, we were doing it in Bethesda, with pediatricians and essentially uh, training them. The idea was to train them in what we would now regard as a sort of uh, skeleton version of self-reg. And it wasn't going well. And there were a lot of reasons why it wasn't going well. Uh, one was that uh, pediatricians were just too busy. Uh, but I think the bigger reason was they only see a kid a couple of times a year and it's just, uh, that's nowhere enough to have the sort of impact we were hoping for on parents. So um, we got another grant uh, basically to, um, uh, the, the thinking, our thinking at the time was, let's try doing this with health professionals. They could see the kids more on more frequent basis. But at that very moment, uh, we were approached, I was approached by a Canadian philanthropist, a guy called Milt Harris. And um, he, loved, uh, he loved what we were doing. He'd read a bunch of stuff I had done. And the child of one of his best friends, in his words, had been saved by Stanley. So he wanted to, uh, he, he basically sent me away, read up a proposal, uh, and um, uh, we would talk about funding a big project. Uh, and it was funny because Stan and I didn't want, we didn't want any more money. Uh, we were busy. Um, but this was a very nice man. So uh, Stanley and I wrote a proposal for something that we thought would be relatively doable in like maybe six months. And I think it was, we were asking for funding for a couple hundred thousand dollars. And Milton and I met for lunch and Milt looked at it and smiled and tore it up. And he said, now I want you two to go back and this time think what you would do if I gave you seven and a half million dollars. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. So um, we thought about it and it seemed to us that um, it would be wonderful if we could do a, a rigorous um, random, randomly controlled trial of DIR. Uh, it hadn't been done, it's very hard to do. And um, to make it even more complicated, we decided that we needed to do it with therapists who were not DIR trained. The idea was we wanted to show that it was DIR and not their experience. That was right. a critical factor. So I, I can't remember my timing now. Around 2005, we launched the Mary study. It finished in 2012. And um, it was, <laughs> when it finished, uh, I remember someone from the university said to me, uh, would I consider doing a follow-up? 
uh, another longitude was never in this life. It, <laughs> it is very hard. It was, um, it was um, challenging in many, many ways, but also unbelievable and life transforming. And our goal in the Mary study was to work with children, uh, and all of our kids were on the spectrum. And we wanted to, uh, we were working with kids that had considerable difficulty engaging. And uh, the goal was to see, could we, by uh, identifying and reducing their stress and building in restorative practices, could we get them um, not just Okay, we are having a little glitch here. It looks like the internet has paused. Okay, we just had a little internet uh, kerfuffle. We're back. <laughs> Continue. And let me just so, clarify for the listeners. DIR refers to the developmental individual differences relationship-based model that um, we talk about here at Affect Autism and the Mary study, the Merle and Ethel Paris Research Initiative. Uh, so it, I had been working uh, for several years for uh, someone called Dr. Fraser Mustard. Um, I was running a, an early childhood development council across Canada. And uh, we were alarmed by the um, explosion uh, problems that we were seeing. And back in 2012, the one that we were really uh, worried about was, in fact, anxiety. We were seeing an anxiety epidemic. And we were seeing it in all ages, um, you know, uh, less, less percentage-wise in younger kids, but still there. And the worst part of all was that it wasn't understood. Um, uh, uh, educators didn't realize the symptoms of anxiety and were, and were doing things that were exacerbating the problem. Anyways, the point is that uh, we decided, I decided at that point, to go back to my original plan, only this time my universal model would be um, delivered through teachers. And I know that one of your questions, um, I will not tell you why, I'll wait for that question, but there were several reasons why we wanted to do it through with teachers. Uh, by teachers, I mean any educator, so from ECEs up until high school. Um, and uh, it wasn't simply because um, they spend a thousand hours uh, a, a year with a child so can know the child. Uh, we had much deeper reasons why we wanted to have a school-based initiative. Okay, well, um, and I remember that um, report that came out. I was working at the Ministry of Education at the time, and I oh, think were you? Uh, he had a big influence on the early years um, policy yes. in Ontario. Yes. Um, so, okay, so you, you do this study, you have this large grant, and how did this lead to the creation of the Self-Reg Initiative and all of the work you're doing today? Well, um, again, it's a complicated question. So first of all, um, there's, there are several big differences between Self-Reg and DIR. And DIR is a model that was uh, explicitly, explicitly developed for children on the spectrum. And so typically these will be kids that have an awful lot of problems with say um, uh, back and forth interactions, um, 
uh, with reflective thinking, logical thinking. But that's not the kids that we were dealing with in the school system. So what we were getting was kids that uh, were able to um, hold uh, conversations, could think, could distinguish between you know, reality and fantasy, et cetera, but were having serious problems in attention, in behavior, uh, in mood. And so what we needed was um, a platform. So this is one part of the answer. We needed something that was suitable for all children. Um, and um, also uh, in self reg and I, I should just clarify, I don't know how much you explained to your listeners, but in the DIR model, um, uh, the first two stages or levels of the DIR model are the heart of self reg and those are regulation and engagement. Uh, and so what we were worried about was um, we were worried about uh, self-regulation, arousal regulation, and we were very worried about the kinds of things that we were seeing happening in school. And I should clarify what I mean by that in one second, okay? Sure. But there's another aspect, and that is that in self-reg, an awful lot of what we do is called reframing, as you know. And uh, what we were worried about was the way um, very uh, antiquated biases uh, can affect how you see a child and how you respond to that child. And uh, in many cases, these reactions are, uh, they're, they're subconscious, they are, they leak out in our tone of voice. And so I'll give you an example. Um, I, have a, I have a child on the spectrum and um, there would be occasions when, you know, as much as I understand and as much as I knew what was going on in him, um, you would be yourself a little bit drained and uh, whatever. And I would snap at him and, uh, and then he would go into freeze and, and then I would be, you know, I would just eat myself up. How could you do that knowing everything you do? Uh, so I made a very conscious attempt not to snap. But the problem is that if he was doing something that I found irritating, it leaks out. And these children are incredibly sensitive, all kids are. And uh, when a child any, or a teen is in fight or flight, what they hear is what's coming through your tone of voice or your, or your eyes, or they hear what we call limbic utterances. In fact, that's all they hear. And so you cannot control these, these very subtle cues that we give off. The only thing we can do is if So can we go again? Yep. From there. And the only thing they hear are these, what we call limbic cues. Uh, they, don't, they don't process the actual words you're saying, but they do process what you're feeling. And the only way you can change what you're feeling, you cannot change what you're feeling through, say, willpower or, or, or telling yourself, don't feel that. It's when you understand, when you see what's happening with this little guy, that all of a sudden your own anxiety or your own tension just dis disappears. 
And now you are calm and he hears or she hears that calmness. So for self-reg, it's every bit as much for us critical what the adult feels, understands, experiences as the child. You can't, you know, we, we pay a lot of attention to the interbrain, to this wireless connection. And um, there was a very special reason why this became critical for me in terms of education. So shall I tell you why? Absolutely. A lot of the families that we saw had children that were being either diagnosed or um, uh, treated as if they had an attachment disorder. And I'm just going to assume that your audience knows what an attachment disorder is. But essentially, uh, cases where the child is very avoidant or resistant. And the assumption is it's because the caregiver didn't love the child. This is the refrigerator mom syndrome, only it's big. It's huge. Every kid who's having problems um, uh, in school, it, the, the, the kind of hidden assumption was uh, back to the refrigerator mom days, which we thought had gone away, but hadn't. And what we noticed, we noticed something incredibly important at Mary. We had children that were securely attached and became disorganized when they went to school or when they went to preschool. In other words, these were children with what we with what I call fragile, secure attachment. And what that means is that, yes, these are kids that had a number of issues. Sensor, let's say they're sensory issues. But the caregivers were incredible at figuring out, um, you know, you know uh, I'll give you an example. We had, uh, I remember this one child who was dysregulated by floor polish. But mom and dad figured it out, not us. They knew before they came to see us. And they came because the child had become securely attached with them. The child had become disorganized when the child went to school. Now there's a lot of reasons why that happens, and it happens a lot. Um, it can happen because there's a huge jump in stress. So now the child has the stress of other children or the stress of a, an uncomfortable environment, or uh, maybe there are things that are uh, taxing that child's sensory system. Or you can have a caregiver, and this is the important point, you can have a caregiver who has not learned how to tailor their interactions with that child. The, we talk in self-reg about the importance of the interbrain. And the interbrain is a brain-to-brain -brain hookup. And what we saw in, and it's up to, like with a young child, it's up to the caregiver to be the one that reads the child's cues and adjusts the stimulation to keep the child calm and, and regulated. And what we saw over and over, many times, was caregivers who were unbelievably good at this. But the, the early educator or whoever, um, if, you take a, if you take a, say, a three-year-old or a four-year-old or a six-year-old and you transfer them from that 
secure home environment to an environment where the other partner of the interbrain doesn't have that skill or doesn't have the time to devote to the child or whatever, right? There's a lot of reasons why it can happen. Now what happens is that fragile child, the child was securely attached, the child became insecurely attached, just, uh, had an attachment disorder with this new interbrain partner. And so what we were finding was uh, many of the kids, many of the families that we worked with, um, even a child, so I talked about fragile secure attachment. There's also something called robust secure attachment. Now robust secure attachment is, those are the cases where, you know, the kid really doesn't have the kinds of sensory issues that say we might see in a child with, that's on the spectrum. Nevertheless, we also saw children that looked as if they were on the spectrum. We saw children that had become disorganized even though they had robust attachment. Why did it happen? Well, they were simply overstressed. And to top everything else off, we had that, what I mentioned at the outset, uh, we were seeing this extraordinary epidemic of anxiety. And all of a sudden, we, we knew a couple of things. We knew right off the bat what we had learned from our work with children on the spectrum. Uh, and that was we are raising a generation of kids that are overstressed. We don't know what the stresses are. And those stresses, many of them are going to be hidden stresses. Um, but we do know that these are stress-related issues. And we do know that for half the year, a child is going to be spending two-thirds of their time in school. And unfortunately, what happens, you know, we have this saying, what happens in school doesn't stay in school. So if the child is, uh, is overwhelmed, and it could be by an emotional stress, it could be social stress, it can be cognitive stress, it can be pro-social stress, whatever the, uh, and usually it's five different kinds of stresses, it's usually all five, not one. Um, what happens is now, coming back into the home, um, the child has, tell me if this is too much information, okay? The child has developed uh, defensive mechanisms at school to deal with this. And those defense mechanisms are changing the trajectory. The, child, the child's interactions with caregivers become skewed. Um, the child um, doesn't feel safe at school doesn't feel safe anymore at home. And so that, that's a very deep reason why we wanted this to be a school-based initiative. Because at the end of the day, by the way, we believe very strongly in education. I mean, I, I just think it's huge. But it has to be education which nurtures a child. Uh, all children now need it. So that's why we ended up doing that. Yeah, that's great. And I think that um, anyone who listens to the podcast and is familiar with the DIR model will hear a number of things from the DIR model in yes. what you just said. So um, it, it may be that a lot of kids in general are going through anxiety and having these stresses, but if anything, all the more so for our kids who are autistic, who yes. are experiencing the sensory biolo yes. biological stressors, not yes. to mention um, if they're lucky enough to have caregivers who can tailor their interactions, as you said, 
to the child's needs. And um, you mentioned the term interbrain. I think of that more as co-regulation, where yes. you have this co-regulating yes. process going back yes. and forth yes. and, and making the child, you said it, safe, feel yes. safe. Yes. And to a parent, what the definition is of feeling safe is might be different than what the definition of safe feels like to that child. Yes. Because if you gave a great example in your book, which I'll just show um, the visual viewers here, oops, self-reg, how to help your child and you break the stress cycle and successfully engage with life. Yep. Um, you, you gave a great example of um, trying to picture what your child goes through. So imagine walking down a very steep yeah. staircase yeah. without holding the rail. Yeah. Um, imagine talking on the phone where yeah. you, it's all fuzzy and you can only hear every other or every third word. Um, yeah. I forget what the other example was, but when you start to understand that yes. your child does not in, um, experience the world in the same way you do, and you have to adjust what you're doing, um, some parents uh, can do that very well and others need a lot of coaching and, and assistance. I, I agree with everything there. you just said. <laughs> yeah. But I um, do. So I guess um, where, where I was wondering is because this um, self-reg initiative is so relevant, it's the first functional emotional developmental capacity of the DIR model. Um, everything hinges on the ability to be regulated and ready to engage with the world. Um, I'm curious to know um, if there's a way to apply some of these strategies to our children who are autistic or have other developmental challenges, because I, I believe um, a lot of the DIR world, even though it, the model was created through Dr. Greenspan's clinical experiences with children in poverty and then children on the spectrum, yeah, that's correct. different, different um, environments, uh, they all say that it's actually relevant for everybody because yes. you end up doing floor time with your spouse, with your friends, with everybody, because you're learning to have this um, empathy where you can see what the environment, um, what effect the environment is having on the other person and how it's being perceived. And yes. um, it just becomes a way of interacting in general. Yes. So I, I love how um, you talked about reframing because um, – <laughs> Dr. Gordon Neufeld, prominent Canadian developmental psychologist, talks about it all the time. When you see a child through a different lens, all of a sudden That's you right. change. And you mentioned it too. Um, yes. When we see children who we think are misbehaving. So let me give you an example. My son's latest thing is going and spitting at us. Um, yeah. And what do the DIR people say? They say, what happened right before he started doing that? That's right. And it's amazing that you can think that he's just misbehaving or he might even um, reach out and hit. Now, he's only nine. He's very strong, but when he hits, it's more of a playful tap. It's not really yeah. like hitting. Yeah. But um, a lot of people might see that as misbehavior. But if you look right before what was going on, it's usually something that he didn't want to happen. So it's bedtime or we have to leave this favorite place at your grandparents' house where all your fun toys are. I love it. Yeah, it's great. And they have a little dog that you love to play with and we have to go home now. And then it's because yeah. he hasn't yet um, developed the capacities to understand that I'm feeling anxious and I don't want this to happen and I don't have a way to necessarily communicate this in, a, in an appropriate way. 
which parents misunderstand because my son's very verbal and it, it's improved a lot. He's, he's at the point now where you actually can really understand what he's saying, not yeah. like it used to be a year or two ago where only the parents could understand what he was saying. He's, he's starting to be, um, his speech and language has really flourished. So he's awesome. able to speak. Why can't he tell us? Why can't he tell us, Dr. Shanker? Because, he's, because he is so hyper-aroused. And what happens is the child goes into uh, what, in the, what we call red brain. And unfortunately, when we're in red brain, um, our ability, certain of our so-called blue brain abilities, so those are the abilities to uh, think, to um, speak, uh, to formulate ideas, etc. they are all not offline, but they are suppressed. And so one of the lines that we use uh, with uh, our teachers and our suffering parents is they need to learn how to speak limbic. And, <laughs> and uh, because this is uh, limbic communication, what he's saying, and it is incredibly meaningful. And uh, your, your explanation was uh, a great lesson in why, why everyone and not just parents need to learn how to speak limbic. Because uh, I'll give you another example. This is a really good one. So we were working with a kid recently. He's a, he was a young teenager who'd gotten in trouble for something. And um, so this, uh, I got called in because um, it was a child of a friend of the family. And the kid kept on saying, I can't remember what he'd done. It doesn't really matter. Uh, he kept on saying, I don't care. And, um, and so what the um, vice principal was doing was they were escalating the punishments, uh, you know, and, and by the time I got there, it reached the point that he would be expelled and maybe he would be sent to, you know, reform school or whatever. Uh, and he's just repeating over and over at each stage, I don't care. So uh, when, I, when I sat down with him, and he knew me, um, and um, in this state, the child's ability, uh, whether it's a child or in this case, he was... 14, um, their ability to uh, express, to even know what they're feeling is incredibly compromised. Um, and this really is a red brain utterance. How do I know? Well, there's some very interesting things. Um, one of the ways you know is the tone of voice changes. So um, what your little guy was doing with his raspberry that's a primitive and really, if you think about it, pretty damn brilliant way of communicating what he's feeling. Uh, and they're all jumbled up these feelings. And what this 14-year-old was communicating was that he was scared, that he really didn't know what he'd done, that, and so on and so on. The one thing he wasn't communicating was that he didn't care. But the vice principal thought uh, could not distinguish between misbehavior and stress behavior and thought that, and she kept on saying to him, well, you better, you, you damn well better start to care. And of course that scared him even more. And now the, here's a kid, by the time I got there, he was in freeze. So um, what I did at that point was I had them turn off the, you know, all the standard DIR stuff. So you know, turn off the lights, just relax. I didn't say anything. Because even speech, when you're in that state, is very stressful. And, you know, so we just sort of were together. And uh, I, got, I got everyone to leave, so we were alone. 
Um, and all I had to do was let him remember that he was safe with me. He knew me. And eventually it happened. Now at this point, what's happening is as, as the alarm gets turned off, um, the blue brain comes back on. And so now he wants to tell me that he does actually feel kind of bad about what he did and that he doesn't back here. So how does he tell me that? He says to me, do I like Bugatti racers out of the blue? So I don't know what the hell is a Bugatti racer. I had to ask my son when I got home, but it's a motorcycle. So I said to him, um, oh God, yeah, I love them. But what that question really meant was, I need you. I need to feel that connection. I need us. All he was saying was it was a bid for social engagement. So now I think about why this is so serious. That if you, if you confuse that stress behavior for a misbehavior, he knows he better care. He better think hard about the implications, you know, and all that nonsense. You can do harm. You can do genuine harm. You can ruin a life. And so again, I mean, one of the things that we've been working on very, very hard uh, is getting educators to understand not just that there is this distinction, but that there are signs that they tell you. So sometimes they'll tell you in such a way you can't avoid it. They'll, they'll do a raspberry right in your face. Okay, well, I get it. Yeah, you're going to make sure, you're making sure that I got the point. Sometimes they tell you with their pupils. When a child's in red brain, the pupils go fully dilated. Look at the eyes. Listen to the tone of voice. Uh, Stanley used to say, listen with your eyes and not just with your ears. So one of the things that we have found is when teachers, even those who are most resistant to this, because you, know, the, you get a lot come in and they say, oh, you're just, you know, you're just uh, um, uh, being a, you're, you're, you're advocating permissive teaching. No, not at all. Uh, what we're advocating is making children safe. And then if they've done something that uh, they need to learn, we will address that when, we, when the child's in a state to, to learn it. Um, what we find is when I see stress behavior as stress behavior, and you said this a second ago, my own stress, just, it, it disappears like smoke. Um, and suddenly I relax, my tension comes down, and now I can begin to communicate those signals, those affect cues, which transmit safety, which tell the child that you are in fact safe with me. Yes, I do like Bugatti racers. Don't know what they are, but I still like them. Yeah, it, it is all about affect, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> That's the name, affect autism. Um, yeah, what you said is so important to DIR that we look at the behavior um, the why as a cue and as communication. And, Absolutely right. and it, it's, it's so hard for some people to get past that and they can read engaging autism and they can read self-reg and they can read other books and know it cognitively. And then in the moment when their kid spits at them or kicks them or throws sand in their face or whatever yeah. it is, um, they can't get, they can't separate the fact that 
this child needs to, to learn a lesson and I can't let them do this. Yes. So what is the process you see yes. that really gets the teachers or parents coming to understand and practice this new outlook that, um, you know, is it, is it some, some people that I've, I've talked to on other podcasts have said, you know, it's really about letting the parents know that punishment will just stress them more, make the behavior that you don't like more likely, um, you know, shouting when they should be soothing is going to, you know, turn off, like you said, turn off the blue brain and, and just make it all stress. And they're not going to develop all of these capacities that they need to form empathy and be social, yes. et cetera, et cetera. Yes. Um, and, and that when you, you're in your book, you say force instills only fear, yes. not empathy. Yes. Um, and that empathy grows as a function of this interbrain, this co-regulation, yes. the two-way yes. um, empathetic yes. exchange. Yes. But, but how do you see, because you've now seen this process in a number of people that you've worked with, how do you see this process where you've had the, the um, stark behaviorist type thinkers, yep. um, I have to train this child, yes. educate this child and teach this child how to yes. behave yes. versus this way, which is reduce the stress and the bad behavior disappears. So it's a great question, and I'll tell you what we've learned. Um, we had a breakthrough at Mary. So in the Mary study, it wasn't going very well. And um, we had wonderful therapists. And um, after the first year, Devin and I were knocking our heads together, trying to figure out well, what's missing here. And so Devin came up with the idea that we needed a mental health expert for parents. And so we hired Eunice Lee. And what she worked on was the parents' self-regulation. And no mention of the child, no mention of you have to do this or that, or if you think this way, it'll be better. What we started to do was say, how much stress are you under? It's very stressful to have a child on the spectrum. And that was the turning point for us. So when we started working with teachers, we made the same mistake. We, start, we were giving them all this information and teachers were coming to us in a behavioral management mindset. Uh, will self-reg give me that quiet classroom? So then we switched entirely and we started doing self-reg for you. Self-reg, what are your stresses? How do you deal with them? Unless this is internalized unless this is meaningful personally and guess what the stress load on educators is ridiculous you were at the ministry you know and it gets worse every year and so i'll never forget i had this one educator and she had a serious weight problem and we now know there's been some fabulous work done by george Crusos on uh obesity and cell and dysregulation and obesity is essentially just uh, um, uh, when an individual is caught in a stress cycle. And the, it's complicated. I won't go into it. Anyways, the point is that I started to talk to her. And I said, it's nothing to do with willpower. Nothing to do with choosing better. This has everything to do with the stresses that you're under. What are the stresses that you're under? Can you identify the stresses that you're under? 
And it was this magical moment for her because she was struggling to be a great, uh, she was an administrator struggling to, you know, to hold it all together and had really, really serious health problems as well as the weight. And then all of a sudden she saw, I have never thought about my own stresses. And so she began to work on her self-regulation. And the result was remarkable improvement in her health. Okay, which makes sense. But then she became a champion because what she started to do was she started to talk, tell teachers, you need to do this. Forget about for the kids. And every single time we have encountered the kind of, um, it's a defensive response, right? Uh, I don't want to let go of behaviorism. I don't want to let go of self-control and forget it. All we're going to talk about is how's, how's life for you. And it's when they themselves have that moment of letting that, letting go of that burden. Now what happens is their perceptions of the child really do change. So what we do in all of our institutes and all of our master classes, all of our training sessions is we start off with them. With their, with their own need for themselves to go through the five steps. Then they get it. That's amazing. And I, I just want to um, share my screen for a minute because I want to show you what just came today in my inbox here. This is from Holland Blurview. Parent yeah. hacks for finding joy. Love it. So they did a survey and all of these parents who have children that have various special needs and struggles, what strategy do you use to protect your mental health? So whether it's um, going out and doing it. something Love physical it. every morning, etc. So this is really um, a it. trend that I see happening. I see yeah, so many too. more newsletters coming about self-care for parents. And, um, you know, it's, it's amazing. Well, Hall and Blurview is doing amazing work. Yes. Yes, our, our son spent three months there, and so I'm very closely tied to what they do and, and big fans of everything they do. Yeah, um, they, um, yeah I mean, it's, it's one thing, and I've talked about this on, on the podcast and blog before, about how the focus is always on your child, your child, your child. You've got a diagnosis. Yeah, you yeah, must yeah, do yeah, this, yeah. this, this, and that. And yeah. this is really saying, you know what? It's stressful raising a child yeah, that has yeah, developmental yeah. challenges. Yeah. It's stressful being a parent in general. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I love what, it. What do you need to keep your stress under control? Love it. And when that happens, it, it's amazing how much more relaxed the child is. And especially when we have super sensitive kids who have sensory issues and all this other thing. Like you said, we don't realize the affect that's coming off of our, um, through our nonverbal communication. So I'm a person who likes to have order and have everything organized and get everything ready for school. So if we wake up late, I'm in panic mode, like uh, to my husband, go do, go boil the water, go do this, get your pants on, go do this, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden I'm a drill sergeant. And then, you know, everybody's more stressed. So, I hope everybody watching that heard the change in your tone of voice. <laughs> exactly. My tone of voice changes. My husband says to me, like, you sound like a drill sergeant. <laughs> and so um, what would be a way through your five-step method that I could use myself? Uh, so the first thing is to recognize 
I'm not misbehaving or being a, a mean wife or a mean mom. I'm yeah. stressed. Yeah. So recognizing we woke up late. Um, I'm really stressed out because I know I have to get my son to school and get to an appointment, let's say. And now we're rushed and we may not have time to get everything ready that we need to, to get out the door on time. So can you walk me through those steps briefly? We're running a little bit short on time here. What is the best thing I could do? And in general, what's the best thing parents can do um, to really help start to see some change in their homes? So um, let me answer it with, uh, let me answer two different questions. Um, first of all, um, you made a point in your uh, letter to me where you were saying, you know, this is all very cognitive. How do you expect to, how do you expect to teach this to a child that, uh, um, you know, may have limited uh, language or who's in fight or flight or in freeze, you know, how or, do you, or even, or even to me, because like you, I said, I could have read all this stuff, but in that moment, it's out the window. I'm stressed out. I want to get everything out of, out of everybody out of the house. So, um, so one of the things that we found is that there is in fact an inverted curve and there were lots and lots of signs before you got stressed out that you were going into, you know, we use the Thayer matrix. Uh, and so that Thayer matrix is when you're in that low energy, high tension state, and that's when you become a drill sergeant. But there are lots of signs well before, in fact, um, those signs may have occurred the previous day or the previous night or when you woke up. And um, what we do with kids is we want them to learn. You know, I did this uh, one session with a bunch. It was a session on explosive, uh, explosive behaviors, the raw screen stuff. And I started off and I said to them, the first thing I said was, there is no such thing. And everybody was aghast. You know, would you, how can there be no such thing? I mean, he just, you know, they blow up for no reason. So I said, okay, now stop and think. Get in your minds that, that occasion where there was the blow up. Uh, the kid, not you. Now, were there any signs that morning that, that you sort of, well, now that you mention it, and in fact, we do process these things. We do see these things, but we sort of, um, we sort of ignore them, uh, hope for the best, and then we get the explosion. So one of the things that we want teachers to learn is, or educators or parents, is to identify the signs well before. That's when we want to, um, that's when we want to um, uh, have some sort of calming, regulating, whatever it is that we're going to do. In the moment, once it's happened, all you can do now is you can just say, oh, take a deep breath uh, and then take another right? I mean, it happened. And you're human and, and it doesn't really matter. And it doesn't matter if he's late. It doesn't matter, you know, so, so, but it's those steps leading up. It's like a pressure cooker. It's as if, now the question becomes, can I teach that to a child? Yes. Can I teach that to even a nonverbal child? Yes, we did it over and over. Um, what works for them? Well, here's a good one. So my little guy, when he was in school, um, he, went, he knew when it was happening. So he would sit in class and it was stressful for him having other children. It was stressful for him being stuck in the, you know, the, the, the chair stuck to the desk. And so he would get up and he would get up and basically go on walkabout. 
And the first time it happened, everybody freaks out. And, you know, and they get mad at him. And now you've taken a, now you've, he was self-regulating. And now you've, you've taken a, you know, a natural reaction and you've turned it into a crisis. But the principal was a really great one. And we talked about it and she said, there's a safety issue. Okay. So we just got to make sure that, you know, when he's walking, that there's somebody is keeping an eye on him. Okay. That's not so hard. The point is that I didn't have to, I didn't have to use abstract or difficult language to explain this to him. Here's what I said to him. So I said to him, sweetheart, you know, you were starting to get that kind of itchy feeling in your arms. Yeah, dad. Okay. So the next time you get the itchy feeling, the teacher said, all you got to do is just put up your hand and she'll know you got the itchy feeling. And now you can go out to the hall and you come back in when you feel better. So what we want to teach them is how to recognize the signs um, and, then, and then learn what works for them. And um, the second part of your question was, so what's the one takeaway that we want to give them? So the one takeaway is you actually answered it yourself. I loved it when you said it this morning. Um, we want everyone to say why and why now. So why am I exploding? Why now? Why is he doing this? Why now? And what that does is very interesting. Uh, and you talked about how in DIR, they teach you to ask, well, what happened before? What we find is that when we go red brain, so we start, we go into an automatic mode. And by asking, if we can make a habit of asking why, it doesn't really matter if you know why or not. Uh, it doesn't matter if you can figure out the stresses or not. But what does matter is you insert the pause. Stan used to talk about the pause between stimulus and response. So if we can get parents to, you know, I have that uh, example in the book of the, the woman that, um, I forget, what was her name, Michelle or something, she went out into the hall. We had her go out into the hall and ask, you know, just take the deep breath. All we wanted was we don't want that, um, we don't want that, clash of fight or flight and fight or flight so by inserting the pause we can stop that alarm and can i teach that to a kid yeah i can actually and i guess it does become more challenging with our children who are still uh, maybe cognitively developmentally we always want to meet them where they are developmentally if they're yes. not at the stage where they can know when they have that itchy arm um, I think that's maybe where DIR comes in because yes, I agree. Um, we are helping them until they develop that capacity. And I wish we had more time. I'd love to get into I want, I, Daria, um, I want to just finish on that point. Sure, sure. It's, it's a huge point. So um, first of all, that's absolutely critical, right? So what I love about DIR is that what we're doing is we are slowly, palatinamente, helping the child become regulated and with the hopes that the child will begin to do it themselves. One of the things that we've noticed in our work is that children or teens can regress in moments of great stress to exactly the child that you're talking about. And when this happens, what they need is that co-regulating adult that just like the adult, you just, the caregiver you just described will help that child go back into homeostasis, back into calm. 
And um, I am endlessly astonished at um, when you when you see this kid, you, you mentioned Gord's looking at the children through new, new lens. When you see this child, when you see the child through this new lens, you see a new child, a wonderful child. And they all are. And that's the message that we want to get out. We want people to understand every single one of these kids is just unbelievably wonderful. And I am endlessly amazed when I can start to release the brakes, when I can start to release the alarms, I am amazed at the kid who comes out of this. Always amazed. And like Dr. Greenspan said, he never met a child with whom he couldn't engage with. Nope. Um, and I've seen him do it. I've yeah. seen him do it. And it, took, it would take Stanley all of about a half a second. He was a child whisperer. <laughs> I wish I could have met him. Um, well, thank you so much. I, I would have loved to get into some of the modulation games and exercises we could do with children, red light, green light, um, making things fun so that they can learn about slowing down, speeding up and having that body awareness. But uh, listeners, don't fear. It's all in the book, Self-Reg, and there'll be a link to it at the blog post, affectautism.com. Um, I will put links to some of the other things we discussed. Uh, just do a search for Dr. Shanker at affectautism.com. And thank you again for taking time from your very busy schedule to speak with us about, about this. I think the work you're doing is fantastic, and it can only lead to good things for our autistic children in the school system. Because if the educators start to yes. understand that all of the kids are stressed and how to deal with that, it'll only make it, them understand our children that much better. <laughs> Keep, so, keep it up, Daria. You're doing good. Oh, thank you so much. So, uh, listeners, until next time, here's to affecting autism.